John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast for September 1917. This podcast looks at life in World War I through the letters of John Adams, who was 23 when he joined up in September 1914. He served with the 9th Service Battalion, Royal Irish Fusiliers, and was involved in many significant events on the Western Front, particularly Passchendaele. These are his words, read by his grandchildren, and narrated by his great-grandchildren. This month we find John Adams writing quite eloquently about how a soldier views letters from home. We also have a different history section. A month or so ago we had the reenactment group Living History Ireland in our town as they reenacted a World War I trench. It was a very interesting and informative time and we are grateful to the volunteers involved who were most happy to be recorded talking about what it was like for the people in the trenches in the First World War. This recording is an outside recording so please forgive the sound quality as there is some noise from the wind and there was also a chip van there with a loud generator. I don't think the chip van was authentic for World War I. Also, I did say during one of the interviews that the surgeon was a general surgeon a couple of times and when listening back I realised that he told me he was a German surgeon. We first hear from George Logan who headed up the Living History Ireland group that day. My name's George Logan and what you see here today is my display of the World War One setup, which would be, and I know it's nowhere near what it would be, but it gives you a slight insight to what you'd have seen and, and items that you would have seen and how life was maybe lived at the front, where you can get a hands-on touchy-feely of stuff. We don't do the museum stuff, we, we, we do the wow factor, whereby um, everybody can come and try on, lift, handle. Uh, most things that, that uh, they would see, which gives them a more textile feel to the whole thing rather than a, a vision. Mm-hmm. That's great. And thinking about 100 years ago now would have been Passchendaele. Uh, what would it, have, would it have been like for the men back then? Well, at this stage, as you know, we have had fought quite a lot of big battles. And so everybody knew what they were letting themselves in for. It wasn't a new experience, except maybe for the new recruits and the new men brought up to the front. Um, but the, the, the men, the campaigners that had been there from the word go or have had been in for a year or more and had taken part in a lot of these battles would know what was coming and, and the, the dangers and, and all the trials and tribulations that would go with it. You've just come through a hard winter. There's been a reasonable summer, but it has been wet. Um, so we're dealing with trench foot and we're dealing with lice and, and, and you know all the different things. There's no showers or hot water or baths out there. Um, timber was nearly all gone because it was all used for the, the war effort. So there's no trees. It's a real barren land. So everything has to be brought to the front uh, by the, the trail of horses and the mules. Um, who would work like a, a, a conveyor belt from the ports right round. So if you sent a letter, for example, from England, it could be on the front in four days, right to the, the, the trenches. And this was because the, the Germans had the technology and a lot of fancy equipment, but what won the war for the British was their logistics. They knew how to shift things about, they knew how to keep men supplied, they knew how to, how to keep the, the morale going and all sorts of things. As the Germans had all the nice fancy guns and machine guns and, and everything else, but the, that was the, 
the two differences to me in, in the war, if you read it and look at it, it the British logistics was just un, unpassable. Um, as I say, it had rained, and, and to get these paths going, well, they cut down all the timber to make wooden walkways out over these mires. With the, you can, if you take it, there was uh, 13 million horses and mules on the front on a conveyor belt going round and round and round. So you can guess a muddy field would soon become in knee-deep and, and further. So to overcome that, they were laying down, the sappers were, were, were laying down these wooden paths that if you wandered off, and you'll see the odd photograph with men trying to get horses pulled out, and you would think, well, that doesn't look any dirtier than the whole field they're standing in, but they've wandered off the, the wooden platform that probably six, seven foot wide, wide enough for a man and a mule or a horse to walk. So... Back to your original question, what, what, what were the feeling? Um, probably they were getting all the ammunition forward. The men knew whenever everything started to pump up, the, you know, ramp up a wee bit, they knew something was happening. They maybe didn't know, as, as most battles, to about a couple of days before it. They would have got their bar of chocolate resupplied, and not many people know about the. They had a bar of chocolate, and it was kept, and you weren't allowed to touch that chocolate unless your, your sergeant told you, eat a square of chocolate. That was there was opium in it, so it, it was a, a boost of morale job. You you can obviously know what that meant. So every so often, about a week beforehand, they were getting the odd bite to keep the morale going because you'd done sort of about four or five days, uh, six days if you were unlucky in the trench, and then you were taken off for three days for a rest. At this stage, they weren't been rested. There were just more and more men kept arriving in. So you've got the trenches if they weren't platformed and wouldn't out, are. Uh, knee deep in mud and the extra men and the extra bodies there was less places to sleep and and it become a real logistic nightmare in the trenches to get fed and bigger queues and so people got a bit narky so this is why they were told to take a square of their chocolate that took the edge off them uh, and more so they got two squares to go over the top so that that's you know one of these things that don't people don't really know or, or whatever the the sergeants then um being a sergeant in the front was nearly one of the worst lines because you were left in the trench when the men went over the top and you stood with your pistol and if a man come back without the recall, you were shot. His job was to shoot you there and then for being a card, if you know what I mean. And, and that, that goes back to the Napoleonic periods where the sergeant stood with a big... You'd have seen him with a staff with a big spear on the top of it. Well, he used that and if you turned, he speared you, you know, and that was, you know, that was a British tradition. <laughs> Uh, but there's no point the sergeant going out if he's going to get knocked off, so he remained. So maybe it was one of the nicer jobs in one way, but one of the most, you know, you didn't have to go over the top. So you've all these things going on, and, and the, the water, and the rain, and, and the muck, and the, the bugs. It's, it's, you're right in France, it's not like in here in Northern Ireland, okay, south of England, you'll get these things, and, and what had you. They had two of the hardest winters uh, previously, so nearly the fight against the elements was nearly as much as big a fight against the Germans uh, the increase of surveillance going out, as you know that they slept during the day uh, and were bombarded and then everybody stand, stood to at night and you had the repairs going out to fix the wire and, and all the, the, the defences they had put up to stop the Germans from sneaking up in them at night and then you had reconnaissance groups going forward to have a duke into the German bunkers if they could and sort of do a head count. And so this had increased, so that they definitely knew something was gone. They were wanting a head count. Many Germans was here, where's the softest spot? And there was more and more of these reconnaissance scripts going out. And the cavalry at either end, uh, they'd done away with the cavalry very quick in the war at the start of it. 
policemen put the men into the trenches and the horses went into the conveyor belt. But they kept uh, two divisions either end of the, the line and their job was to go out round and scout uh, and, and see what they could you know, get out round uh, behind the enemy. Was that on the horse? On the horses, yeah, because there was no tanks, there was no, no, no vehicles, you know, so um, they were used to, to go for reconnaissance away out round, they maybe would have went four mile out and then tried to come in behind the enemy to see what was going on, plus they were there to stop any pincer movements been made and, and what had you, so um, th- that had stepped up, so the word was up and down the line very quickly, you know, what's going on. That's great stuff. Thank you very much. So I'm Jamie McAdoo and I represent First Lieutenant in the North Irish Horse. And with Living History Ireland, us as a reenactment group, we represent everything from Viking all the way up to World War One and World War Two. So we're standing here in a mock trench. And obviously there's a bit of a difference between where the officers are and where the men are. So uh, what have we got here? Okay, so as you can see, we've, we've got a dugout here, and this would have uh, housed two officers uh, minimum. Really, you would have had two officers in one place, so that if there was more than, say, four or five in one place, an artillery shell hit that dugout, it would have wiped out the command. So we only ever had two in one place. If you look towards the fire step, we can see uh, we've got a, a dugout here in the wall. That would have housed two soldiers at a time. Actually living in there? living in there day to day that would have been their their sleeping area uh, the resting area when they're not doing other duties thank you very much well I'm Ryan Hines I'm fight with the reenactments as well dress up as in this Brez the British today so and we've got a table of different things and you were saying that they're most of them would be original most of them yes most of them are original this would usually be an officer's sort of uh, mess is the way that we've organised this one so there's all sorts of different things here. There's like a flask here for this one here, for drinks and stuff. So we cup and then that would unscrew there. Uh-huh. So there's quite a lot in here. It's uh, just a person's private collection of everything there. So okay. we actually had people come in earlier and they said they asked about this here as if it was like a shoe, uh-huh. shoe post. That's, that's what it looks like. It looks like it, but uh, I was talking to Eddie there, another person. He says that's actually for just brushing down clothes for the officer. Oh, right. So I'm going to take this and just brush, brush down his uniform because there's a wee, wee comb as well in there. Ah, right. A personal grooming kit. Mm-hmm, yeah. And what, what's the box with the dials on it? The dials? Um, I'm not sure, but it looks oh. like it'd probably be a radio because there's your yeah. your volume and everything there. That'd be the Morse code thing there as well. Okay. You tap down. Okay. And can we pick up the rifles? Yes, they're not. They're not. These are uh, the replica ones that we have issued. Um, yep, you hold that. Okay, so so they're all Lee Enfields. This is the standard issue firearm used by British soldiers during the First World War. Wow! Every soldier would have been issued with one of those. It would hold ten rounds of three oh three British uh, bullets. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's here. You have a hold. See, so, yeah, heavy. <laughs> I'll put that around there. Remember, that's just like a replica. So, like it, the real thing we have, we have real ones. We'll probably we'll be using during the battle later on. Right. They're a lot heavier, so they are <laughs> even heavier loaded. Too. Yeah, you'd have a kit on as well. I have this on too. Yeah. Top of it, and this, like even this, is light compared because none of these are filled with bullets. Mm-hmm. Imagine this all being filled with bullets and even more equipment on top of that. So, and what's that like to wear? To wear this, it's not as 
heavy and terrible as you'd have thought. <laughs> it's actually quite comfortable, so it is. You know, it's not. You know, there's no belts holding this. The, these are just braces instead. Uh, the putties are actually. They're not as uncomfortable and as like dirty as they seem mm -hmm. for British soldiers. They're quite warm and comfortable to wear. I seem to remember those in the 80s, the army still using them. Yes, I do believe that the army still use them because there's, they're just a good way of keeping the soldier dry and warm. You know, it's, and it stops the, because obviously this is all, all of the standard uh, uniforms are wool. Mm -hmm. So when that would get wet, they'd become very heavy and very, you know, very smelly and everything. So it's good to keep the area here around your feet uh -huh. dry and warm so you're not, because that's where you're, all the mud's going to be down there, so you want to keep that yeah. as dry as possible. Okay, then, thank you very much. Okay then. I'm Tony Beatty, I'm here with Living History Island. And you're obviously dressed as a doctor on the front. As a general um, surgeon. As a general surgeon. What was the job of the general surgeon? Um, on the front line in the first aid station, it was to stop the bleeding and patch the troops up well enough so they could be moved on to a field hospital. John Adams, my grandfather, he was injured in the hand and one of the things he writes about in the letter was he was very lucky to have kept his hand. Would that have been a, a major thing, just chopping bits off? Because I look around me and I see bits of limb hanging about. In the warfare, there were lots of serious injuries, so a lot of the time it was quicker to cut the limb off and save the rest of the arm rather than take time with hundreds of people injured and possibly having more people die from blood loss. So it was quick, cut off what you needed to cut off, bandage them up, stop the bleeding and move them on. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Andy Madison and I am dressed as a sergeant from the 5th Battalion Stormtroopers who were part of the Prussian element of the German army during the First World War. Um, so what was it like for the Germans? We hear a lot of, about what it was like for the British soldiers, but what was it like for the Germans? Um, well, if we start with food-wise, uh, it's a lot better for the Germans. The Germans eat better than the Allies. Um, we have over here a little display of uh, rations for a platoon for a day. So a platoon at that time is between 8 and 12 men. So you have a loaf of hard bread. You have various tinned meats. Of course, they have the likes of the brave entos, corned beef, and all that type of thing that the British have, like the bully beef, but they also have what's called flesh preserve or flesh extract, which is basically pate, so very high in calorie content, and you would smear that on your bread if you didn't have any of the little packs of strawberry jam. And you also have liverwurst, which is high in protein as well, being liver, you have your coffee, ration for the day, you have loads of tobacco, everybody gets lots of tobacco because it stems the hunger. So they smoked a lot because it reduced the hunger pains that they would feel. And also the Germans were always issued daily with beer. So you get a bottle of beer a day. So it all helps to keep the mineral content up. If you're very lucky, you get some chocolate sent from home. Uh, so you would share that out amongst your comrades. And of course, over at the other end, we have the little Dutch oven. So you can bake your own bread, you can make soup, you can make whatever you want. Hardtack biscuits, the same, uh, the, the, the German ones are round, but the same as the British, it's basically flour and water, and it's baked and it makes it really hard, so if you try to eat it, you break the teeth off yourself, so what you would do is you break it up in coffee or tea, or if you're making soup, to make the soup thicker, 
you would add your hard tack into it so it thickens everything up. Um, we also have it easier because um, we are the first ones to use poison gas. We're also the very first ones to invent the gas mask. So this is the 1915 uh, version of the German gas mask. So as you can see, it, it, it looks like sort of like a modern gas mask. You have your eye, glass eyepieces and you have your filter. Um, yeah, you have a nice tin to carry them so everything doesn't get broken. It's not too bad to breathe in. Uh, you will steam up slightly. The, the eyepieces will steam up. So if you can do without wearing it, you do. Okay. Is it comfortable? Uh, it's a gas mask. It's <laughs> about as comfortable as it gets. So the, uh, as for the uniforms, we're wearing a mix today uh, because as the war continued, uh, new uniforms, simpler uniforms are issued using lesser quality material. Uh, but I'm wearing the 1910 field blouse, which is in the field grey, as they call it, which is not really grey, it's more of a greeny colour. Um, but I keep it and you adapt it, you put elbow patches on, jumpers that I'm wearing because an element would be cavalry, but the cavalry went into the trenches as well, the same as the British. So I'm wearing jodhpurs putties uh, for the same reason as the British wear them. They were supposed to keep mud and water out of your boots and keep you nice and dry, but they don't work. They don't really work at all. Right. You do get completely soaked. Trench foot is an awful problem. Um, you're issued with what's called foot powder, but all it is really is talcum powder. There's no medicinal property to it at all. So it's just to dry your feet. Simple leather boots, or you'll see some of the guys are walking about in what they call jack boots or parade boots. Uh, they would wear them as well, like wellies. So if you manage to pilfer a pair of boots uh, that were up to your knee, that's all the better for you. <laughs> uh, different array of weapons, from uh, hand pistols with the Lugers, the Mauser broom handles. Uh, we've got... The Machine Gewehr 08 15, which is a lighter version of the Maxim machine gun. Right. And as stormtroopers, one guy would have a leather strap attached to him and he would carry it and he would run towards the enemy lines. Um, and two guys with him, one carrying the ammunition and another one carrying uh, a water coolant because the water, the water can fits in with a rubber hose and that is supposed to cool the barrel down as it's firing. So you'd have a belt of 250 rounds of ammunition to put through it. And a good gunner will get off maybe six, 700 rounds a minute. Right. Wow. And at the very top, there's a machine gun called the Madsen. Now, it was developed by the Danish army. And lots of people would recognise it if they see it as being, looking like a Bren gun. Well, it is the grandfather of the Bren. That's what the Bren's based from. So it's very different. It's not belt-fed. It is a top clip that clicks in, so you can either fire a 30-round clip or a 50-round clip. Like the British at the start of the war, um, everybody has this um, idea in their mind that you went into the trenches and you stayed in the trenches and it was a horrible four years. You didn't stay in the trenches all the time. You had a 14-day rotation. So you were in the trenches for 14 days and then you were rotated behind the lines for rest and recuperation. So that's where you get de-loused and all that type of thing. Uh, the problem with the guys going into the trenches is the British Army only issue you two pairs of socks. It's the same with the Germans. You only get two pairs of socks. So you slept during the day and you worked in the trenches at night, repairing, rebuilding the trenches at night. So you wore one pair of socks um, while you're working. They're the ones that get soaked and you keep your other pair dry 
and when you get into your bunk at night you put on your dry pair of socks and no matter what army you're from and the letters that you look at that is what the guys are asking for most will you please send us socks send us socks send us socks send us socks um, as the war continued of course Germans are vastly outnumbered so their time at the front gets extended but they still maybe up to 20 days they still have maybe 10 11 days out of the month where they're not on the front lines where they are rotated back um, but every soldier has a passbook so he can request leave but he must be back at a certain time he must only go to the place that he says he's going to or these are offenses that you'll be uh, punished for was it easier for the germans to on their leave if they had two days off could they get back to germany whereas the irish guys would have two boat rides in front of them that's exactly right the, the irish guys have uh, huge travel the thing about the germans is <laughs> even to today they would say germans are really efficient they kept the railways going uh, they extended railways they built new railways so their troops yes you when you get furlough home it's easier it's a train ride home thank you very much Friday, 7th September 1917, Field Postcard. I am quite well. I have received your letter. Letter follows at first opportunity. Saturday, 8th September 1917, British Expeditionary Force. My dear mother, just a few lines hoping that this will find yourself and all at home still enjoying good health as this leaves myself in the best of health at this time of writing. The weather still continues to be fine. It is just like summer these nights, and I hope it still continues as it is most pleasant for our work. Well, mother, I hope you have stopped fretting, for you know yourself there is nothing made by it. I think it is good saying, never cross a bridge till you come to it. There is always a bright side to every story, and I always believe in looking on that side. I got both your letters and also Jimmy's, and if I have time tonight, I shall answer his also. I had no word from Jenny since she went back. I do not know what I done on leave. I cannot sit down and answer her letter as soon as I get them. There is something else for me to do here. Well, I think I shall stop now as I have written to Annie also. Good night, your loving son, John. Written on the other side of the same page. Dear mother, your letter is the shortest but I shall write to you soon again, Johnny. Monday 10th September 1917, Field Postcard I am quite well and have received your letter. Letter follows at first opportunity. Wednesday 12th September 1917, Postcard Pictured is Clifton and the Long Hole Banger. From Jenny, John Adams' sister, who worked in domestic service in Hollywood, County Down. Just a line to say I am well and having a good time. The weather has been very good for so far it's dry. This is another view of our road. There are fishing boats. The waves are very big today. Had a postcard from Jay today. Love to all from Jeannie. Monday 17th September 1917. Field postcard. I am quite well. I have received your letter. Letter follows at first opportunity. Friday 21st September 1917. Field postcard. 
I am quite well. I have received your letter. Letter follows at first opportunity. Sunday, 23rd September 1917. My dear mother, just a few lines in answer to your ever-welcome letter, which I received all right. And I am glad to know that yourself and all at home are still enjoying your usual good health as it leaves myself at this time of writing. I am glad if getting a letter from me does you any little good. It is all I can do for you while I am out here. But I believe that you think so long as you get a letter from me that everything is all right. But what about me out here? I think it is just as bad if I do not hear from home. For the day we get our letters from home is a red letter day in the history of the soldier out here. It is the only way we can hear what is going on. The slender thread between us and the homeland. I do not think the people at home understand what it means to uh, be out here. They think if they hear from those out here that it is all is required. But never for a moment do they look at it from the soldier's point of view. They never seem to think that he is just as anxious about those at home as they are about him. But anyway, I always look forward to getting a letter from home. Well, I hope Johnny and Annie are not working too hard this weather. I suppose the people are in the midst of the harvest. I am three years left home this week. And I may tell you, I have seen some sights since that. But as long as you keep well yourself and all at home, I am quite content. Well, the weather is still keeping fine and I hope it may continue as it is most pleasant. Does Jack ever be home? I had no word from him for a long time. But I think it is my fault as I do not think I answered his last letter. But I must write to him as soon as I get time. But if you see him, remember me to him. I had a letter from Jeannie the other day and she is well. They are at Bangor now. Well, I think I have to close for this time. Hoping to hear from you soon again. Remember me to all at home. No more at present. Good night. I remain your loving son, Johnny. Wednesday 26th September 1917. Postcard showing Ward Park from main entrance. Bangor County Down. Postmarked Bangor. Dear Mother, just a card to say I hope you are all well. How is Jimmy getting along? It has seemed a very short month since we came down here. We go home on Monday. First there is a lot of Hollywood people down here. I expect it's well cleared. I hope you are all well. Had you any word from John lately? Best love from Jeannie. This is a very nice park. Thursday 27th September 1917 Field Postcard I am quite well. I have received your letter. Letter follows at first opportunity. Thank you for listening to John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast. To find out more about John Adams and his family, visit www.johnadams.org.uk forward slash letters and you can email us with your comments or questions at letters at johnadams.org.uk You can also follow at jadamsletters on Twitter. The history of the 9th Service Battalion at Royal Irish Fusiliers during World War I is taken from Blacker's Boys. Visit them 
at www.9thirishfuseliz.co.uk. That's with the number 9, not the letter. Podcasts will be published 100 years after the letters were written, so will be published nearly every month. This has been a Mark's Mass production. <laughs>